Welcome to the TALON project. TALON stands for Teaching and Learning Online Network. As we adjust to the new COVID-19 reality, TALON provides a platform for sharing and discussing resources and practices for remote education. You can learn more at taloncloud.ca. Enjoy this episode. Hi, how are you? This is Mahabeli. I am an Associate Professor of Practice at the Center for Learning and Teaching at the American University in Cairo in Egypt. Um, this means that the majority of my work is faculty development. So my work involves helping other professors improve the way they teach, integrate technology in the way they teach. I give consultations, workshops. I help them assess students, but I also help students give feedback on the course and assess the course and assess the teacher. Um, and part of my work involves using, um, helping them use digital education and part of it is just education in general. Um, in addition to this main part of my job, I also uh, teach one course on digital literacies and intercultural learning to undergrads. And in the past, I've taught teachers as well. And I've taught um, part of a creativity uh, course uh, with a section on educational game design. Other than all that, I'm also the co-founder of two grassroots um, open initiatives. Uh, one of them is called Virtually Connecting. Virtually Connecting is a grassroots movement that challenges academic gatekeeping at conferences by uh, creating these hybrid conversations between people who are on site at conferences and virtual folks who can not make it to conferences. And that often excludes a large chunk of people um, who are in the global south, who are women, who, who care for young children, um, adjuncts, uh, people with disabilities, uh, and graduate students, right? Um, and so what Virtually Connecting does is that allows them to be part of a conference, even though they're not there, um, and speak to people in these hallway conversations. It's not about the presentation so much, but having access to the hallway, the informal uh, conversations, the networking. Um, and, and, you know, Virtually Connecting has grown a lot over the last five years. Um, and, and it has become a way for, I think, marginal academics and especially the field of education and educational technology to have a voice at conferences that they can never attend. The other um, uh, grassroots organization that I co-founded is Equity Unbound. Um, I'm a co-facilitator of that with um, Mia Zamora, Catherine Cronin, and actually a larger group of people right now, but we're the three who founded it. Going back to virtually connecting, I founded that with Rebecca Hogue, um, and now we have five co-directors, um, including Autumn Keynes, Christian Friedrich, and Helen DeWart. Um, for Equity Unbound, my co-facilitator Mia Zamora is in the US and Catherine Cronin is in Ireland and now we have folks, um, we have an Iranian from Japan, Purisa Mehran, um, and we have folks from Canada like Bonnie Stewart, um, and we have a whole host of other people uh, jumping in and out of it as we go along. So Equity Unbound is an equity-focused, open, connected, intercultural learning curriculum. It's it started out as a way to supplement um, my existing course on digital literacies and intercultural learning because of the need for addressing intercultural learning and digital literacies by starting from an equity and social justice perspective. And also as a way to integrate connected learning into that kind of curriculum. But it has grown into other branches. <laughs> so it has also within it a continuity with care angle that came up uh, during the COVID era and an inclusive academia project which is influenced by the Black Lives Matter movement. 
and in our attempt to make a difference in how academia um, addresses race and injustice in the academy itself. Um, I write and speak frequently about social justice, critical pedagogy, and open and online education. I recently co-edited a volume um, called Open at the Margins, Critical Perspectives on Open Education. This is a volume that I co-edited with um, Catherine Cronin from Ireland, Laura Chernovich from South Africa, Robin DeRosa from the US, and Rajiv Jangani from Canada. And what we've done is we've collected perspectives about open education that came from people at, in the margins, but they provided perspectives that had not been spoken about in the dominant white majority of people who were writing about open education beforehand. Uh, and we collected them because they were offering a very different way of looking at open education. Um, and we put them all in one volume. These were things that were maybe published in blog posts or in speeches, but not in academic journals where people could find them more easily. And we thought that putting them together would make it a lot more intense, sort of where you see all the marginal views in one space rather than lost in a sea of dominant whiteness. <laughs> um, I write a lot. I blog in my own blog, um, blog.mahabeli.me, and I write in all sorts of other different spaces, but definitely my blog is one of those spaces, and I tweet a lot, um, and I'm at Bali underscore Maha on Twitter. So I've been asked to answer a few questions. Um, how will or does your teaching look like in 2020 and 2021? Um, I would say the most important thing about my teaching right now is that it's focused on care and well-being of my students more than anything else. Uh, because of the situation we're in, a lot of people, my students, my child, myself, my colleagues, are going through different kinds of trauma because of the COVID pandemic. Whether it's a health crisis, a mental health crisis, uh, just economic crisis for some people. This involves to me a, a shift of priorities of what we need to be doing when we're together and, and how do we spend our time when we're together. I think uh, I'm doing a lot more listening and empathy than I, I mean, I would normally try to do this, but I think a lot more right now. And I think my teaching has to be dynamic. I have to respond to the situation in the world. I have to respond to the way people are reacting to what I'm doing with them. The opportunities created by digital education. Um, I think there are a lot of opportunities created by digital education, but there's also, it has to, it's, it's really tricky because those opportunities are not evenly distributed. I would say maybe the one opportunity that digital education offers that is, if, if someone has access to the digital education, so if you have the infrastructure um, and if you also have the digital literacy to be able to use digital education, uh, then the biggest affordance that digital education does is about how it can flex time in different ways. Um, I think doing things like asynchronous and semi-synchronous learning helps give people a lot of agency over how they're gonna spend their time in a digital space where they can um, do things at different times, come back to it again, there's space there's a flexing of space and time together because when we're all together in the same room, there's a limit to if someone is speaking, someone else cannot be speaking at the same time. Whereas digitally, we can all be speaking at the same time in text and we would all still be able to contribute and then you can go back and look at it later or you know rehash it later. But the, there's space for every single person to participate in that way and not be interrupted by anyone else. And semi-synchronous spaces are beautiful because places like Twitter and Slack and WhatsApp where you have a small group of people, um, if we're all talking at the same time because the texts are small, it feels like we're all together chatting. 
Uh, but if someone misses it and they come back a day later, they can still find it. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of beauty in that because it allows you to have that immediate conversation if you need it, but it also doesn't exclude people who weren't there in that moment too much. So that's what I think is cool about digital. Uh, but I think it's also really important to think about the social justice angles because a lot of times we think about um, digital education as, oh, it's allowing access to everyone. And, and, the, and there is more than the economic angle of having access to devices and infrastructure. There's also the digital literacy piece, like how well you know how to use what you have. Um, and then there's also a couple of dimensions like Nancy Fraser talks about economic, cultural and political um, social justice, because the cultural side is whose perspectives are you exposed to when you use Google? Which perspectives are you getting? Like there's so much information online, but whose information are you getting access to? Whose knowledge are you getting information access to? When you look at Wikipedia, whose knowledge is dominating what you get to find on Wikipedia? And a lot of times this is white Western male perspectives. And so just having access to the internet, which is free for most of that kind of thing that I'm talking about, does not mean that this is social justice because everyone who has an internet connection has access to the same information. Uh, and even having access to a tool like Zoom, and even if you have the good connection, that doesn't mean that you're someone who's comfortable being in a synchronous conversation. Doesn't mean you're comfortable having your camera on. But there's a lot of these like, who sets the norms of a digital environment? And what does that say? So it's not just whose perspectives are taken into account, but the political aspect of who gets to choose, uh, who gets to design it, who gets to be on the table, and who are the stakeholders whose perspectives are taken into account as we design our courses or our digital environments. And so that's really an important thing to keep in mind. Like, who are the people who create these educational technologies and who, whose interests, in whose interests do they create them the way that they create them, you know? Um, the other, I think, opportunity that digital education gives us, and more so this year because of COVID, because everyone has been digital, is the opportunity for locality, global and local, working together, and openness. It's because everyone's learning online who has access to online learning, which again, of course, is not everyone because a lot of people don't have that, that access. Um, but everyone who has access to learning online there's a lot that we can learn from each other so that, for example, when I do professional development for professors at my institution, I could do it locally, but I could also have a global angle to it where there are other institutions who are going through similar things who can join us and we can all learn from each other, right? There's no reason most of the time to just keep it local. You need to have the local part, but there's so much value in the global part. And um, in this summer, I participated in something called DigPins. I facilitated the American University in Cairo version of it, but there were versions in four other US institutions. Uh, this has been going on in the US for quite some time in different institutions. It started out in one university, and then it started to be several universities in the US. You know, people who are interested in learning more about digital identity and digital pedagogy and digital networks and digital scholarship, um, that kind of thing is something that you can discuss across the world. It might have different nuances in different local spaces, but there's so much value and talking about it with other professors, sometimes a professor of mathematics in the US and Germany and Egypt and Japan have more in common because they're teaching the same thing than they do with a colleague in their same institution teaching a different discipline. Sometimes that's the case. So there's a lot of value in that. And then there's also a lot of value in just openness. Like even if you're gonna create something local, there's value in posting it online. So for example, when we created our 
um, guidance for going online during COVID, a lot of universities kept it open and we left ours on our website as well. Anybody could benefit from that, you can adapt it. There's no harm and there's also a lot of benefit <laughs> in doing that, right? You're, you're not just, first of all, you're making it easier even for your own local folks to benefit from it, but you're also helping other people. We get influenced by other people too. And, and, and having that information easily accessible without having to go through a password or a paywall or something like that is, is a really useful thing to do. And I think a lot of things in education can be done that way so that we can save people's time so that they can focus on their connections and relationships with each other, you know, make content available so that people can focus on communication and connection and community building. That's what I think. Um, I was asked to talk about the challenges experienced when teaching online or remotely and to also mention a moment that I want to forget about. Um, I, as someone who's, you know, I did my master's in e-learning at the University of Sheffield back in 2003, I started it, and it was a longer part-time program, so I finished in 2006, and I think I didn't have any particular challenges that I faced myself in my own teaching, uh, have that experience. Um, I even tried out Zoom with my students before COVID happened and the closures happened. I had Slack, we had blogs, you know, we had all kinds of things going before this happened. Um, I think the, the main challenge has been the trauma of the pandemic itself. And then when I learned from Mesa Ned and from Karen Costa about this concept of trauma-informed teaching, it gave me terminology for expressing this anxiety and, and, and you know, difficulty of this whole situation on, you know, it helped me describe what was happening to my child, what was happening to my students, what was happening to me, what was happening to faculty that I was supporting, right? It's just, it was difficult. And the cognitive load and how that affected people's ability to manage their time, that became something that was a really big deal to keep in mind. Um, and so what I, what I did last semester, which to me is not a challenge, is that I shifted my focus in my live sessions to listening to students and helping them express what was bothering them about what was going on and trying to take what I've learned from them back to my institution in my faculty development work to pass it on in the way that I advise faculty how to deal with the pandemic. So for me, that was a, a really important um, aspect of, of my pedagogy and my practice as a whole and, and trying to make sure that everything was equitable for students who are coming from different perspectives, right? And who have different um, abilities and the different circumstances and so on. Um, and, and it, but it wasn't a challenge so much, you know? I think what I did struggle with a little bit in my role as a faculty developer and giving professional development for faculty is that I was used to doing online professional development types of things as mostly in smaller groups. And this is good practice in online learning, right? Usually like five to 15 people. If you have more than 20 people, it gets really unmanageable. And we usually try to split them up in smaller groups. And I wasn't really sure how to handle this with uh, workshops that I was doing online, right? Until I attended a workshop on liberating structures. This was a full day workshop. Uh, with professionals who know how to do liberating structures properly. And this transformed my thinking and my practice uh, because I was in a six or seven hour workshop and I felt engaged the whole time. I was awake the whole time. I really felt it was useful. Every single activity that we tried uh, had an impact. And I think every single one that we've tried, I've tried again since then. Uh, and what it showed me is just because I didn't have access to breakout rooms in Zoom before, so I'd never, I had used them as a participant, but I hadn't tried them with other people a lot, or I mean, I'd try them, but not with a particular structure. 
um, it showed me different ways of structuring those breakout room conversations. And so since then, I've both transformed the way I teach and transformed the way I do these uh, professional development workshops. And I went back uh, to my colleagues at the Center for Learning and Teaching and demonstrated some liberating structures to them. Liberating structures are, are ways of structuring conversation and dialogue to make them more equitable so everyone's voice is heard and to make them more effective so that you can reach good solutions or good outcomes or good outputs in a very short amount of time. And they're very energizing and I, I really enjoy doing them. There's so many of them and I'm gonna talk about them again in a minute. Um, and so it just, it was a good reminder. I already knew about liberating structures from before, but I wasn't as confident and I wasn't aware of the entire uh, spectrum. I knew it existed, but I had not tried them myself with someone so that I could feel confident to actually then try them myself as a facilitator. Um, I had only tried a couple of them before. So I'll talk about these uh, soon. But I think that that to me was the most important thing. And because I think what was missing in this pandemic, especially, is more than any other online learning, the socio-emotional aspect became really important because people didn't have outlets for socio-emotional learning outside, you know. So it, you needed to sort of establish a sense of intimacy in people when they were together instead of putting them in groups of 30 where they were a sea of faces, 30 or 100 or whatever putting them in breakout rooms where they could be like groups of four or five where they could see each other and look at each other's feel like they kind of sort of look in each other's eyes or they're alone in a room this makes a huge difference with online learning and i think um, liberating structures help structure that conversation so that when you leave them alone in a room of five they're not like lost for words and they don't know what to talk about because not everyone is good at making small talk so a moment i'd like to forget about um, this is a very specific moment um, but it has helped me better structure Q&A sessions in, in workshops. So this one is about a participant who came to one of our workshops. It was a workshop of like maybe 70 people or just a pretty large number. And she kept interrupting me to ask questions and to make points that were very specific to a particular context. And it turned out that she just had surgery and was taking medications that were maybe making her a bit uninhibited. And so I felt really sorry for her because there was a lot of other participants there really frustrated with her and I couldn't find a way to politely ask her to stop talking. <laughs> um, and yeah, she was under the influence of medication. So it was like really, I didn't want to be rude to her as well. And I didn't want to mute her, you know, but what we did after that is that we decided to do something different for all our questions. Uh, for our Q and A, we decided to use something like a Slido or poll everywhere that does upvoting for questions so that people don't just so it doesn't become like the first person who unmutes their mic is the person who gets to ask the question, but rather everyone types their questions, people upvote, and then the most pertinent questions that the majority of people have are the ones that we ask, answer first. And I, I decided this is maybe the most equitable way of doing Q&A in the first place. So it came out well. Um, my most used software or tool are several. I kind of talked about a couple of them before. I think Slack and Twitter. So both of them are semi-synchronous spaces. Like I said before, they allow you to both have synchronous conversations if some of the people are together at the same time. And they also allow you to have asynchronous conversations because someone can come in later and join in at any time. I would say they're like third places, right? They're places where you can have informal conversation. They're neither your formal workspace like email or the learning management system, and they're not like your home spaces. So they're somewhere in between where I think for for both colleagues and for students, a place where you can share jokes and gifs and 
and and and just talk about random things sometimes and this is really helpful for building community and really important right now where people can't as easily meet in cafes and, and things like that egypt is a little more open in that sense that we can do it but it's still not as open as it used to be because people are still kind of careful still so i use slack in my classes um, and with my teammates in virtually connecting. So, I mean, virtually connecting, people tend to think of it as a synchronous thing because they see the videos of us having conversations in a conference. But actually, there's a lot of asynchronous planning happening in Slack and in Google Docs and things like that. I guess Google Docs is also another semi-synchronous space, right? Because you can be writing something together collaboratively with some other people and putting comments to each other. And if you're there at the same time, you're typing at the same time. But if you're not, then your other co-author can look in at another time. So um, the other one, Twitter, is maybe Twitter is my space for public scholarship. Uh, obviously, my blog as well, but Twitter for more interaction. You know, the blog is sort of broadcasting a little bit, whereas Twitter is for soliciting uh, responses from folks a lot more. And a Twitter private message is more valuable to me than a Twitter public space. And so we have a Twitter DM with maybe 20 people. And this is the continuity with care dimension of Equity Unbound. And it's just a group of people who got together to do a conversation about the care during the closure. And then we just kept this Twitter direct message conversation for the past few months. And we just talked to each other all the time about our frustrations, about what's happening at our institutions. We learn from each other. We share our frustrations. We share our celebrations. It's been really important for my well-being. Like without that group, I would not be able to survive this pandemic. They also helped me uh, prepare for my keynote at the Online Learning Consortium Conference this year um, because I was struggling with a few things and I wanted to test out some ideas. So I just kept asking around and a few of them actually helped take a look at my slides. I don't always do that, but in that particular conference, I felt, I felt like it was a really important presentation. I wanted to get it right, you know? Uh, so it really helped because there was a diverse group of them from different countries and different uh, different spaces in academia. And it was really helpful to have caring friends give me that critical feedback on in that session especially. But so much more support than that, really. My favorite resource for te teaching online um, or remotely is one that I recently helped create. So um, these are the community building for online resources that I created with um, it was a collaboration between Equity Unbound and also like a little bit of virtually connecting with uh, 1HE. 1HE is a network of global educators hoping to improve teaching. And I'm on their advisory board and Equity Unbound I've talked about before. I, I'm, I'm a co-facilitator of that. And I think the most important thing we need right now <laughs> is that people don't know. Those who have not taught online before don't know how to create community online. And they think there's a stereotype or a you know, single story of online learning that it does not create community. You can't do it. So it's okay. We'll just do lecturing or we'll do whatever it is we do. But that's not at all what online learning is. Uh, online learning is supposed to have a social dimension. We all know that those of us who've been uh, teaching online for a long time or who've been researching online learning for a long time. And I wanted to help people think about straightforward ways of making it happen. So I'm just going to screen share real quick. Uh, what this resource looks like. Um, and so it's just a series of community building activities. Um, and we tried as much as possible to keep intentionally equitable hospitality in mind. Intentionally equitable hospitality is a notion that we developed in virtually connecting, which is about how do you 
ensure that the spaces that you create are hospitable to those, you know, to different kinds of people, because it's not necessarily equitable. Whatever you do in order to be hospitable may not work for different people. So you need to be very intentional about this and very careful about how to make sure that everyone participates in the way on their own terms that makes them comfortable, that makes them feel um, at home in the spaces that you create. And, and recognizing that this is a social justice issue and that sometimes you need to make room for marginalized people, uh, which may mean silencing uh, dominant voices. So we try when we give activities here to make adaptations. So there's a different, all different kinds of activities. There are introductory activities, like what would you do the first day of class, the first week of class? You can do it synchronously, asynchronously. Um, and you can do it visually like the surrealist redrawings that um, uh, Autumn Kane suggested. There's a human scavenger hunt that Susan Bloom suggested. There's all kinds of things. And some of these come in with like a video um, of us demonstrating the activity. And some of them are just text-based, you know, telling you this is how you do it. And you don't really need to watch a video for every single one, right? This one actually has my um, daughter on it as well, helping us demonstrate it. And then other than intro activities, there are also um, a set of liberating structures, which we try out over here. Um, one that I really like is Conversation Cafe because it structures, um, it structures a conversation to make sure that everyone has a time to speak and then in rounds to make sure that everyone has a time to respond and, and so on, just to make sure that if you put people in breakout rooms, nobody dominates the conversation. Um, I also really like this Mad Tea and impromptu networking, although someone gave us feedback that the term Mad Tea could be offensive to people with mental health issues. So we're thinking of renaming it to Wild Tea or Quick Tea or something like that or Quick Networking. Um, and so the idea of this one is to send people out into breakout rooms in small groups quickly to have a very quick conversation about answering just one question then come back and back and forth and back and forth. And if you can't imagine it, just watch the video here. It's gonna show you how it works in practice. Um, and there's a lot of more over here that you can um, take a look at. And it's just kind of the list of people who have been helping us uh, develop these and there's more to come. These are just some of them. We're still working on a few more. Right now they're like maybe almost 30 and we're adding a few more. And then there are things to do um, as ongoing engagement. So, I mean, one example is the, the Daily Creates. Uh, these are from the Digital Storytelling DS106 course. They're just daily things, creative things that people can do in like five, 10, 30 minutes and share it out and it's fun. And it also gives people an opportunity to express themselves and develop their digital literacies at the same time. So that could be a lot of fun. Um, and then there's also we're like not every single thing that we do here is just a thing that you do, but some of it is uh, talking about things like third places for ongoing community building, like I was talking about uh, Slack and Twitter. It's not an activity that you do, but it's a thing that you do. You know, there's also a whole set of setting the tone types of things, like how do you set up engaging video conferencing and that question of cameras on and off, and we're talking about why you should not force students to turn their cameras on, but how you can engage them without doing that. And we also have, for example, an interview with May Saimad about trauma-informed pedagogy and how she goes about asking about her students and how they're feeling right now. Um, and then there's also just a set of warm-up activities. A lot of people would call these icebreakers. I don't like the term icebreakers because a lot of people have very bad impressions of what that might be, but I think a warm-up activity is nice, just getting us warm and ready to get into the session and, you know, 
So all of these uh, over here are warm-up activities that you can do at the beginning of any class session, really. And one of them is just four ideas for checking in. How do you check in on how your students are feeling today? And um, this semester, when I tried to ask them, how are you feeling today? I got a, yeah, we're fine. We're good. And I realized that that's not what I mean. I actually want to know how you're feeling. So I changed it up, and I've used some of these different ones. And so you'll find some good ideas there um, that have all worked for me, honestly. Last question is, what do you expect higher education to look like in 10 years? And, oh wow, I really don't like answering that kind of question. Uh, I don't like futurizing. Um, I always try to make my futurizing aspirational. Uh, just before COVID hit, I was part of um, a project at my institution that I was co-leading, uh, asking people to futurize their course, imagine their course in 10 or 20 years. Um, and we started doing workshops and I was also futurizing my own course. Uh, and so I got a couple of my students to help me out with this. And in one of the sessions, they came up with what they thought were the essential elements of my course, which turned out to be care for students' well-being and building community rather than any content. They said the content will change. We can find our own content. We can be together in the same room or not. Uh, so they didn't know COVID was going to happen, but <laughs> they basically developed a high flex model for class. Um, but emphasizing the teacher's role in building community and caring for students' well-being rather than uh, in giving content because they thought content they could find on their own and they could figure out what they were interested in. Um, and so I think those students were wiser than a lot of other people and I think what they said is what higher education should be. Uh, I know that not all higher education can be like that, but I do think it should be more human-focused than content-focused and I think it should support the development of the human being to help students become critical citizens, uh, to work within a community of learners, so to be independent and autonomous learners, but interdependent also, and, and be part of a community of learners. Um, I think it will, over time, education will eventually, content will even be easier to reach. I think it's important to note that a lot of the content that is openly available right now, and just as knowledge in general, is very highly dominated by the Western, Northwestern uh, world, and that that needs to open up more to have um, so that knowledge is, is broader and minority and marginal knowledge is, is heard as well. Um, but I think that the role of teachers will be more about promoting critical thinking and creative thinking and offering wisdom and social emotional encouragement and helping people develop the judgment of how to find content and then how to think about how you choose what you decide to use in your life. Um, they can be role models for how to behave in the world as well. So learning is not just an act of cognition, you know. There's a lot more going on there. Um, and of course, it's not that teachers will stop having expertise to give content. They can still create, I mean, that open content I'm talking about should be created by teachers as well, right? It, it, that, that's still something that they can do, especially university professors who are experts in particular things, but then everyone can then create the content that they're expert in and then use the content of other people who are expert in the other stuff and then focus their class on interaction with students and helping them individually and as a group think together um, and giving students agency because when there's a lot of open resources, then students can have choices over what to focus on more deeply if they're interested in it, right? So the teacher becomes the curator and the facilitator and still the teacher creates some of that content, just not every single thing that they use in their course. Just like when we use a textbook, we don't write the textbook, someone else has written it. But if it's open, then you don't have to choose one textbook. You can take bits and pieces of stuff that different people have, read, have written, right? I don't use a textbook in my writing anyway, in my teaching, I mean, anyway, so 
that, that's no different than what I already do. But there's also a lot of stuff that I would like to use with my students that isn't open. And so the more that we have of that, the easier it will be to, to do that kind of thing. So yeah, so for me, like higher education in 10 years or 20 years, I hope students will have more agency and teachers will be able to focus on the socio-emotional development and critical thinking of students rather than having to worry about um, passing on content. Thank you. This episode was produced by Talon. You can find the video of the interview and more at talentcloud.ca. The Talon Project is funded by the Richard Parker Initiative. It is hosted at the School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape at the University of Calgary. Thank you for listening.